We are going to jump into our message. Now, we're going to continue. Remember, we've been, in the, we've been in the Great Escape. This is our 74th message in the book of Exodus. We are in the Great Escape is our overall series that we're teaching, but we're actually in a little mini-series right now called A Willing Heart, A Willing Heart. So last week we talked about and we stood with Moses, what happened there in Exodus 35, verses 1 through 9. What was happening in that time is Moses gathers the people together to relay to them the instructions that God's given them. And what he does, he tells them that they're going to take up an offering of the most precious things that they possess. And what's interesting about that offering is God says that they must do it with a with a willing heart, right? It's a matter of receiving, but it's for a willing heart. And we know that that's for the purpose of God building his tabernacle. And what we had in that, and that message was called a heart to give. But this morning, what's going to happen is we're going to shift out of the offering part where we're gathering all the materials, and now we're going to shift to mobilizing the workforce, right? So this is where the workers are actually going to come to, to fruition. We're going to say they're going to be given their instructions on what it is they're to do in order to accomplish God's will. And the message this morning is called the wise-hearted. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. Thank you, God, for giving us this opportunity to gather in your house. Thank you, Lord, for each one that's here. Thank you for those that are joining us online. Thank you, Lord, for those that will watch this recorded, God. We do pray that you'll speak to our hearts. I know that throughout the week I have been praying over this message, God, praying over this specific scripture, and I know that you've spoken to me, and my prayer now is that you will speak through me. God, help me to share what it is that you have parted to me, God, that it might be the very things that we need to hear. Lord, speak to our hearts. Help us to have ears to hear that we might hear the truth and be changed. Father, we thank you for all that you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I know normally I give you guys a pretty extensive kind of uh, a review of what last week's message was, but we have a lot to get through today, so I'm going to do an abbreviated version. So last week we had the offering. The people were told that they had to give it with a willing heart. They were to gather up these materials that they had. They were going to contribute them to God. And then what's going to happen now is God's going to mobilize these workers here in Exodus 35, verses 10 through 20, which is where we're going to be today, Exodus 35, verses 10 through 20. What's going to be happening here is they're going to be mobilizing the people to get the work done. So verse number, chapter number 35, verse number 10. And it says, And every wise-hearted among you shall come and make all that the Lord hath commanded. So we look here, we see that term, wise-hearted, right? That term, wise-hearted. What's interesting about that, it's not the first time that we've seen it. If we think back, back in Exodus 28, that's the very first time that the term wise-hearted shows up in Scripture. It's 28.3. It says, And thou shalt speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, and that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. So first of all, we see here this term wise-hearted is related to craftsmen, people that are given specific abilities and skills, specific talents that are given to them by God, right? He says in that phrase, I have filled with the spirit of wisdom. So we see here, and what this teaches us is that talents and skills come from God, right? Now, what we know about the character of God is God always does things for a reason, right? God always has a purpose for what he does. So if God imparts a talent or ability or a skill to someone, it's because there's a purpose for that skill in God's kingdom, right? We've all heard the term, a God-given ability. Oh, man, that, somebody can just sing, right? You ever see, like, a four-year-old who can play the piano? Just like, I mean, you're like, how in the world did that... But it's a God-given talent, an ability that's been given to them. So this God-given ability, and by God's character, we understand that he has a purpose and plan for it. So this gift, this talent, is to be intended to be used for the purposes of accomplishing God's will, taking something that God has an intended and actually making it a reality. Now, this is true for you and I. If we consider the fact that God gives us talents and abilities, right, God wants us to bring to reality his plan 
for the planet. You and I are part of a building project just like Moses and the Israelites are, right? There is a building project that's to come. So we've been given gifts and talents, each one of us, right? And this uh, gift or talent, this means you have a special, you excel in one area, right? We know areas where we don't excel. Math, hello. I, I'm not, I barely can do uh, adding and subtraction, so that's not my, my gift. But some people just, man, they, you know, math just comes to them easily, right? Some people have that talent. So if I, I made a list of talents and abilities, you know, let's say imagine sports, right? Some people can just, can just throw a ball, right? Some people throw a ball and it goes behind them. Some people throw a ball, boom, dead on it. They're two, three years old. They had this gift. It might be a gift of administration. It might be singing or musical ability. It could be the gift of giving, right? They just have that giving heart of maybe craftsmanship. They're good with their hands, perhaps teaching. Maybe they're technical. They're good with computers and things like that. Maybe they've got the gift of hospitality. Maybe finances. They're good with money. Maybe encouragement, right? That person's just a constant encourager. Who has someone in that life, someone like and in your life that, man, they're just good at encouraging you, right? They just, they can make you feel better. Even no matter where you may be in your life, they can encourage you. Maybe working with children. Some people go, oh, that's not my gift. And that's okay, because guess what? There are certain people that are gifted. Man, that is their, that's their thing. Then maybe leadership. Some people are natural leaders. Exhortation, that means to challenge people, right? To challenge people to do better. There are some people that have that natural ability. And maybe it's mercy. Maybe you're just a merciful person, and you're that kind of person that when people are broken, they need to go spend time with. But all of these gifts, we've got to realize that each one of them was given not for our personal fulfillment. It's not about what we can get out of them. It's not about us. And that's one of the things that we have to understand in regards to these gifts. It's about accomplishing God's will, not about accomplishing our will. And see, the world doesn't teach that way. And then the second time we see it show up, the, the term wise-hearted, is in Exodus 31, verse 6. It says, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship, to devise working, cunning works, to work in gold and in silver and in brass and in cutting of stones to set them and in carving of timber to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, behold, I have given him with, a, with him a Holiab and the son of Ahissamach, we're just going to go with that, of the tribe of Dan in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted, I have put wisdom, right? And that they may make all that I have commanded thee. So again, he says, look, I've given these talents, I've given these abilities with the intention that they are to be used to accomplish my will. That's the point. And what we find is in, in this secular world, right? Some people go, well, you know, well, what if I use my talent and ability and I'm not doing it for God? Am I, am I committing a sin? Am I doing something wrong because I have this ability God's given me and I'm using it for my career? No, you're not. And what I'm going to explain to you is why. What happens is no matter what we do, whether it be in ministry or whether it be in the secular setting, the desire is that we do it for the glory of God, right? As an example, Colossians 3, verses 22 through 24 teaches us right here. It says, servants, this could be an employee, right? Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. You're doing what you do because you fear God, because you're doing it for God's glory. Verse 23, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. What God is telling us is if we apply our talents and our abilities in ministry, it's to God's glory. If we apply it in the secular world, it's for God's glory, right? If you're an honest, hardworking, dedicated, respectful employee, guess what? The testimony of your work gives God 
glory, right? People say, man, you know what? That guy, I know he's a Christian. You know what? I know I can trust him. I know I can count on him. I know if he says he's going to get the job done, he's going to do it to the best of his ability. His work relays and gives glory to God. See, our problem is that what happens is we many times we have a separation between our work life and our spiritual life, right? We're one person at church, but when we go to work, maybe our tongue's a little looser than it is otherwise, right? Maybe we're okay with things that we wouldn't be okay with in church. Maybe when you're around your Christian friends, you might think, whoa, 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 but you know, it's, it's different. And what happens, we have this division, but you gotta realize the fact that God doesn't have a division. God doesn't say, well, you know what, it's okay if you're one person here and you're another person here, because we're accountable equally across the board, right? God expects us to be consistent and faithful the way that he's faithful. God's not inconsistent. God is always, always the same. So we look at this and we go, you know what? In our spiritual life, you know, we, we're willing to, 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 be, to be godly, but in our work life, we're not. And what happens is, and the reason why we do that is because many times maybe we want to fit in. And the worst thing is that the sad part about it is if you were going to choose any place to be godly, it's at work. Because guess what? That's where the lost people are. Most of us are saved already. <laughs> you don't need to reach us. We've already been reached. So if you're sent on this earth to reach them, and you go, well, I'm going to cut corners there. I'm not going to worry about my, my, my Christianity there. And that's where people are watching you. Man, you're on the mission field when you're at work, man. You're on the front lines of the gospel battle. You're on the front lines for the, for the souls of men and women and boys and girls. You're people that you're interacting with, and they're looking to you for truth. And by the fact that we're willing to cut corners there, man, it's the worst thing we could possibly do. We're undercutting the very thing that we're created for, which is to reach the lost world. So we have got to be looking for ways that we can be used. And the reason why many people are less godly when they're at work than they are at church is because they're a lot more concerned about what people think than what they are about God thinks. Now, I mean lost people and saved, right? You're at church, you're like, you act a certain way because you want your church friends to be like, oh, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, good, godly guy. And we're at work, we're not as godly because we want to fit in with them, right? But if we're concerned with what God thinks, guess what? We'd be the same no matter where we are, no matter who we interact with. And see, that Jesus talks to, some, to a group of Pharisees and, and Sadducees and, he's, and scribes, and as he's talking to them in Matthew 23, he's addressing this issue of serving self instead of serving God. And in seven times he uses the word hypocrites. And what's interesting is it always has an exclamation point behind every time he says it. He calls them hypocrites. He also calls them blind guides. He says, you're trying to lead people, but you cannot even see yourselves. He calls them a generation of vipers. These are the religious people of the day. These are the ones that everybody else is looking to because you know what? their hearts aren't right. They're serving themselves instead of serving God. Right? And we look at this challenge again back in Colossians 3, verses 22 through 24. With that understanding of what you and I are facing, I want us to listen to this again as Paul makes this plea to us. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. He's saying if you're, if you're at your job and they ask you to do everything that they ask you to do, do it to the best. Not with eye service. Not for the fact of letting people, you know what, I'm going to make it look good. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do the job so that on the surface it looks like I did it. But you know what? I know in my heart I didn't do the best I could, right? It says, not as men pleasers, not doing it. You know, as long as he's happy, it doesn't matter if I do the best job. As long as I, it's good enough for him, then I'm good. That's all I need to worry about. But in singleness of heart, fearing God, and whatsoever you do, do it heartily with your heart full, with all of your, all of your soul, as to the Lord and not unto men. You're not doing it for him. You're doing it for God. But by doing it for God and doing your best, guess what? Your earthly boss will be thrilled. Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. 
And see, the choice we have to make in 2020 is the exact same choice that Joshua throws out. This is 3,000, almost 3,400 years ago. Joshua says this. Joshua 24, 14 and 15 says this. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. If you're going to do it, do it right. Serve God with your heart. Put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. Verse 15, and if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, if, look, you don't think it's a good idea, you know what? Choose you this day whom you will serve. Why don't you decide? Don't be halfway in or halfway out. You decide. Don't be lukewarm. You decide who it is you're going to serve, whether the gods which are your fathers served that you were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Look, if you're going to serve those gods, then do it wholeheartedly. Don't tell me you're going to walk with the God of with Jehovah and tell me you're going to go live there. What happens? They had, they had altars to both. They had pagan altars and they had Christian altars side by side. And he's going, hey, hey, no, you decide. What do you stand for? Who do you serve? And he says here at the very end of this, he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we go, you know what? Hey, I mean, I'm not serving other gods. I mean, my goodness gracious, this is the 20, this is the 20, 21st century. Sorry, I'm a little old. <laughs> this is the 21st century, 20 years into it, my goodness. And what happens? We're not, you know, I'm not serving other gods. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not, I don't have an altar somewhere, but guess what? There is a God that all of us struggle not to serve, every single one of us. And that God is what's called self. Self. And boy, you know what? Self, self wants to be recognized. Self wants to be honored. Self wants to be fulfilled. Self wants to be lifted up. Self wants to be respected. 2 Timothy 3.2 says this, For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Shall be lovers of their own selves. And then it continues to list a whole bunch of sinful traits of those people. And that's talking about people of this age. And that's not just talking about the lost world. That's talking about the church world as well. We all have the same problem. Self wants to be so important, and we live in a culture that is all about self. And I know we've talked about this a bunch of times, but this leads us to a concept of this, which is with our, our abilities and our gifts and our talents, they're given to us so that God can use them. But what happens is we want to use them for our own sake. What am I going to get out of this? How is it going to affect my life? What is it going to be said about me, right? And the word my, me, boy, oh boy. It becomes so prevalent, prevalent in our speech and in our thought and the way we consider things. When we make decisions, how is this going to affect me, not how is it going to affect God? When I choose to do this, what's it going to say about me? No, what does it say about him? Because I realize this life's not about us. And if we come to that realization, it will change our perspective dramatically. I think there's one very important thing that we have to do, and Mark 8.34 says it right here. Jesus tells us, he says, when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And if you've been with us on Wednesday nights, we are working through what it means to be a follower of Christ. What does it mean? And the first thing he says, you're going to deny yourself. And that sounds like that's a neat little phrase that rolls off the tongue. Deny yourself. Yeah, no problem. Deny my problem. That's not very easy. Because <laughs> guess what? Self wants what it wants. You wake up in the morning, you're hungry, what do you do? You eat. If you go, you go, hey, you know what? Oh, remember, we're not eating today. Oh, man, really? Oh. And all day, you know, like the whole time you're not, you're like, man, I can't. Sandwich, just a piece of cheese, I don't care. A grape, I don't care. A nut, something. Myself is like, whoa, man, give me something. And I'm going, no, 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 I'm denying you. No, but I want. Right? 
And we think about things. We don't live in a culture where that's regular for us. We don't live in a culture where it's like, oh, yeah, deny yourself. Absolutely. As we talked about on Wednesday nights, man, it's about fulfill, 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 fulfill. So we have this issue that we struggle with. And if you want to know how to overcome it, Wednesday nights, 7 o'clock. Join us because we're not going to have any chance of remotely covering it today. So what we have to do is conclude as we go through this. We conclude, hey, you know what? I understand that my abilities, my talents, what God's given me and given me in my, in my, my talent pool is the fact that I'm supposed to use them for his glory. We come to that realization. Okay. So I want to use them for God's glory. That's why it's important to be a part of a Bible-believing church because guess what happens? In that role, in that church, not only will leadership teach you from the scriptures how to recognize what your gifts and abilities are, but then it also affords you a vehicle to then take your talents, gifts, and abilities and apply them in this world. There's instructions in righteousness to help us to use our gifts and abilities. But, so what we look at is now, so we've had this concept, the fact that they've been told that they're going to give. Now, on top of that, they're going to give their abilities, their talents, and their skills. So now all this is being laid upon them. You've got to realize that this is the first time they're hearing about this. We've been watching and hearing this from Moses from all this time, but only from Moses' perspective. So now, from the Israelites' perspective, they're all gathered together. Moses is like, okay, guys, this is what we're doing. And they're like, oh. So this is, this is where we're at, verse number 11. It says, the tabernacle, right? His tent and his covering, his tatches, and his boards, his bars, his pillars, his sockets, right? So God's, God's dwelling place, and he lists out all these different portions of it, right? The earthly tabernacle, right? That tabernacle God he's talking about. This tabernacle is for Almighty God. This is for the Creator God. This is for Jehovah God, man. This is no mere building project. You're not just putting together a tent. This is something specifically for God, commissioned by God. He is called this to be done. He's commissioned the workers. He's commissioned the materials. He's given the instructions. He did the blueprints, the whole shebang. Now he's handing it over, right? And what's important to realize is the fact that, guess what? This is not the very first building project. This is the second building project that God has called humanity to do. The very first one was back with a guy named Noah, Genesis chapter number six. He was given a building plan, right? His building plan was to build an ark, right? So he's to build this gigantic ark. And what was the purpose of the ark? The purpose of the ark was to protect humanity from the wrath of God, right? The, dam the damnation and destruction that God was going to bring upon the earth, that the whole ark's purpose was to be a vessel to protect humanity from the wrath of God. And what's interesting is we look at this second building project. Well, guess what? It's built about, about, about the tabernacle. But what's the very heart of the tabernacle? The ark. Another ark, right, which is a vessel, which we will see and we'll talk about in a minute, that is actually picturing the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, what it is, Jesus Christ was the vessel that God would use to protect humanity from the wrath of God and destruction. The same principle, the same concept, the same outcome. Two different building projects. And God has a third building project that he's working on right now with us. And that's just a little extra insight. So we look here. And what's interesting, back in that verse, if we looked at it, it kept saying the word his. Notice the word his was used. It didn't say the, it said his. And it kept using that, that pronoun of, of a person, right? So this is God's house. This is talking about ownership. Verse number 12, it says, The ark and the staves thereof with the mercy seat and the veil of the covering. These are the parts of the, of the, of the, of the tabernacle we've talked about. So remember we saw the fact that Jesus Christ, he's pictured in the ark. How is he pictured in the ark? In the fact that, guess what? The ark was to be made out of acacia wood. Wood is a picture of humanity. It is the, 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 uh, the part that can de decompose. But then that wood is supposed to be covered with gold, right? So you have humanity combined with deity, right? 
And then what happens with that, that, that ark, all right? That ark is supposed to contain something. It's supposed to contain the Ten Commandments, the words of God, right? The very words of God are supposed to be inside of this vessel, right? So we look at here, John 1, 14 says this, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Filled with truth, filled with the word of God. Philippians 2, 8 says this, And being found in fashion as a man, right, created in the fashion of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Pointing to the atonement, right? On that ark, there was a point in time where there's these two angels that are pointed like this, right? Those cherubs. And those cherubs, as they're facing, there's a place in the middle called the mercy seat. That's where the blood was to be poured. That's where atonement was made. Atonement was made. Philippians. Actually, 1 John 2, 2 says this. And he is the propitiation. The word propitiation means atonement, right? He is the atonement for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is pictured in the ark and he's pictured in the mercy seat, as we see the atonement. And what we look at is, again, again here, the veil, right? The veil which is listed. The veil is the separation between us and God, right? Jesus is pictured again in that veil. Think about this. At the crucifixion, right? When Jesus is crucified, that veil is torn from top to bottom. Boom. Representing the torn body of Christ, which gives us access to God. We see it in Matthew 27, verses 50 through 51. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Jesus pictured again and again. And so the tabernacle, understand, the tabernacle is a model of heaven, right? We see that in Hebrews 8. It tells us, look, you're supposed to follow the model that God created. So what we see here is an earthly representation of heaven in its three different sections, but also at the same time. Throughout the tabernacle, God is literally picturing himself through this entire thing. Again, we see verse 13, the table and his staves and his vessels and the showbread. So again, the showbread table, it pictures Jesus. Again, through the wood and the gold combined together, but also in the very bread itself. Listen to this in John 6, 51. I am the living bread, Jesus says, which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh. He's like, I'm dying for you. I am that bread which I will give for the life of the world. Right? When we take, when we have Last Supper here, and we spend time to do that, and that representation of Christ is through that bread of his broken body. Verse 14, the candlestick also for the light and his furniture and his lamps and the oil for the light. Jesus is also pictured in the candlestick, the seven lamps, right? God's number of perfection. And the fact that it is the only light inside of that holy place, God's dwelling place. The only light is that candle. And what it's representing to us here is not only the earthly light that Jesus was spiritually, as we see here John 8, 12, he says this, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He says, I am that light. When Jesus ascended off this earth, guess what? This world fell into a spiritual darkness. We are in a spiritual darkness as we speak. That's why we shine as lights, right? We're to be lights just like the moon in the darkness. That's what we're supposed to be, a, rep a reflection of the sun. But then he's also talking about the fact that, guess what? He is the light that's in God's dwelling place. Revelations 21, 23 says this, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it. Right? And guess what? The Lamb is the light thereof. Amen. Jesus I'm the light on the earth, and guess what? I'm the light in heaven as well. So that lamp, again, is a representation of 
him. There's this amazing, and it's just so cool. As we go through this tabernacle, man, God is throughout this whole thing, man. Verse number 15, and the incense altar and his staves and the anointing oil and the sweet incense and the hanging for the door at the entering in of the tabernacle. So in the incense altar, what do we see there? The incense altar is actually representing the prayers of God's people and the golden altar in heaven. Because as we pray, guess what? It rises up like smoke to the nostrils of God. It's pictured through that incense. And we see that in Revelations 8, verses 3 and 4. It says, And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense. And he would offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. The prayers of God's people before him. Again, picturing the representations. Then we see Christ pictured in the door, right? The tabernacle, it says, in the door. Guess what? He is the only entry point to God. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and life, and no man come to the Father but by me. In John 10, 9, he says this, I am the door. It's not by coincidence every time these things are listed that he says, guess what? That's me. Guess what? I'm the bread. Oh, yeah. Guess what? I'm the light. Oh, I'm the door, by the way. Did you know? I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, shall go in and out and find pasture. He said, look, if you come to me, you're going to find freedom and you're from the captivity of sin, man. You are going to be set free and no longer separated from God. Praise the Lord. Y'all are dead as a doornail, but I'm telling you what, I'm excited. Y'all, I was like, hope I'm not scaring y'all. But bottom line is what I want you to understand is like, this, this stuff's cool, man. Because you know what's happening is God is showing himself here thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago before Jesus Christ comes to this earth, man. He's saying, guess what? There will come a day when you're going to preach this word. And guess what? It's just as relevant today as it was back then. And I'm still on the throne, and I still love you, and I still have a plan for this planet. And there's a plan short-term for these Israelites? Yes, they're to build a tabernacle. But guess what? One day, you're going to be that tabernacle. And one day, I'm going to build something on this earth. And it's not going to be a structure. It's going to be a church. It's going to be a church made out of humanity. And I need you to help me build it. Verse 16, the altar of burnt offerings and his brass and grate, his staves and his vessels and the laver and his foot. He's pictured again right there in the, in the altar of burnt offerings. Guess what? That was the place where those sacrifices were done. That's where the burning took place. That's where the, the blood would have been spilled for a short-term atonement of sin. And that pictures the altar, which is the cross, which is where the long-term eternal atonement for sin was made. Again, pictured right there in that brazen altar. Then it says the laver, man. The laver. Listen to this in John 1, 29. It says, The next day John uh, seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world, pointing to that sacrificial lamb. That's him right there. And then in the laver, the laver, which is like a wash basin. The laver is like a big tub, right? This thing was to be made out of pure gold. And what would happen is you'd go, once you left the, 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 the brazen altar, that was at a certain point when you came in the doors. Then at the midway point between the Holy of Holies, when you were going to enter in where God was, that brass and altar would be, or that, that laver would be sitting right at the midpoint. So when you left here, all bloodied and messed from the sins of the world, you'd walk to that laver, and guess what you would do? You would wash yourself in that thing. Because before you went to the presence of God, you needed to be clean. Because if you went in dirty, guess what? You would die right on the spot. So you had to be cleansed. So he says, hey, you're going to go by way of the laver, which guess who it pictures yet again? The Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John, 1 John 1, 7 says this, But if you walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
You and I are in the world, and guess what? We get bloodied up. We get beat up. We get all the things of this world that we get ourselves caught up into because we're so worried about feeding self. And as we feed self, we find ourselves filled with all these things and regrets. We have all these things that have clung to us, and we've, we've got regrets from our past or decisions that we've made. And we go, you know what? Hey, I want to be right. And we go to the laver, and God says, hey, you know what? Hey, I'm here for you. This basin's wide open, man. Just come on, dip your hands in. Get the blood off. Let me cleanse you. Because guess what? If you walk from me to that holy place, God will not accept you. But if you'll go by way of me, he will lovingly accept you in that place. You will be cleansed. Verse 17, the hangings of the court, his pillars, their sockets, and the hangings for the door of the court, the pins of the tabernacle, and the pins of the court, and their cords. So Moses here, he's not relaying any details. He's not going, hey, by the way, let me tell you all the details. He's not worried about the details. Because you know why? Back from Exodus 25 through 31, God was very, very specific. He told exactly how big it was going to be, how long it was going to be, how many parts it was going to be, what it would be made of. He gave all that specific detail to Moses during that time. So what happens now is we see Moses is kind of like the foreman, right? He's the foreman of the job. And Moses' job is to ensure that this thing is to be done according to God's will. He's been given the instructions. He's been given the layout. He's been given all the details. And Moses' job is to lead and instruct. And the reason why this is important and the reason why this is pictured to us is because guess what? If we don't have leadership in our lives, especially spiritual leadership, what will happen? We'll do things our way. We'll figure it out on our own. How many of us have lived prior to salvation? You lived in the world just kind of doing what you thought you should do. 34 years I spent my in the world going, well, this seems like what I should do. Sometimes it was a good decision. Many times, terrible decision. Many times came back to hurt me or hurt people that I really cared about, right? We follow our lusts. We call our flesh because we, don't have no, we have no other God but self. And guess what? Self, when it sees something and it wants it, it says, go get it. If it's a person, go get them. If it's a thing, go do it. You know, if it's a, if it's a substance, go try it. Because guess what self says? I want some. And you know what your job is? Take care of me. Provide for me. You worship me, remember. I'm your God. Make sure you take care of all of my needs. I want that. Go make it happen. You find people, you, know, we, we, you deal with people that have addictions and stuff like that. They're so eaten up with self, they will destroy their own families without regret, steal from them, hurt them, even kill people because self has taken such a direly huge role in their life that they will do anything to feed that self. And the problem is all of us have that inside of us unless we deny ourselves. And we learn to replace self with God because we we're created to serve him, not to serve self. So he's laying these things out. He's giving them instructions. He's helping them along. Because understand, when you and I do things our way, it will never lead us to God. Never, ever lead us to God. Isaiah 53, 6 says this. All we like sheep have gone astray. Astray, man. We've, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The reason why Jesus had to come is because we had done it our own way, and our own way led to destruction. God has a plan. He has a plan for our lives. And guess what? He's laid it out for us in black and white. He said, hey, you want to know what my plan is? Guess what? I wrote it all down. The same way I told Moses to keep track of everything so he'd have all the details, I did the same thing for you. I've given it to you in my word. And what's God's plan, right? Now, I'm glad you asked. 1 Timothy 2.4.
He says this, who will have all men to be saved. Listen to this. This is God's heart. Who will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. Right? God does not want people to believe a lie. Guess what? The world is full of lies. It's full of distractions. It's full of things that will try to draw us away. So we look at that and we go, he says here, who will have all men to be saved. Not, it doesn't say just white. It doesn't say just black. It doesn't say Asian. It doesn't say gay, straight, Hispanic. It doesn't say old, young, male, female. None of those things. There is no division. Guess what? When God looks at humanity, he sees no divisions but one. Just one. Lost, saved. You and I see divisions in people. Tall, short, fat, skinny, black, white. We see all these divisions. God goes, what do you see? Where do these come from? This is not heavenly wisdom. I created every single life. I created every one of them. They all have my DNA. I placed it in them, designed them specifically as they are. And for you to make fun or point at my creation, you're, you're, you're making fun of me. If you draw a picture and I go up and I ridicule the picture and you're standing right there and you did the very best you could and I go, that's garbage. This is terrible. You don't go, yeah, you're right. Your heart hurts because you're going, you know what, I, I did the best that I could. And God gave us, our, gave us his best. And every person is uniquely and specifically created by God. And for us to see differences is absolutely wicked. It's not God's heart. God sees only those two divisions, man. Lost and saved, that's all he sees. But the devil doesn't work that way. The devil works through division. You know what he wants to do? He wants to magnify the difference between us. He wants us to focus on the differences. Because guess what differences do? They divide us. And in division... We are destroyed. Unity strengthens us. Second Corinthians 4 forces this. In whom the God, the God of this world, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. And why does he do that? Why does he blind them so they can't see the truth? Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. They're in that spiritual night. They're in the darkness and they're fumbling around trying to do it their own way. They're wreaking destruction, and the devil's whispering to them, do you see what's different with them? Do you see what's wrong with them? Do you see there? There should be hatred and anger and judgment, all those things, which he fans the flames of hatred. And we see it in our world today, man, as cities literally burn, and people screaming at each other in such anger and rage, and it all comes down to this. It's a sin issue. It's not a matter of race. It's not a matter of individual. It's not about people's political stance. It's not about that. It's about the fact that the enemy wants to destroy us. And what God says is, you know, I want to magnify your unity. Because guess what? You all have one thing in common. You're sinners. <laughs> You're all sinners. Remember Matthew, and in, in Isaiah 53, 6, for all, all you've gone astray. You've all gone your own way. So God says, the one unifying factor that you have is the fact that you're lost and undone without me. And what you have to understand is the fact that if you can see that, because of the division, people aren't on the way to hell because of their race, their creed, their color, their you know, upbringing, whatever. There's no, it's, not, it's not related to that stuff because everyone has the same issue. Everyone deals with sin. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everybody, all have the same issue. So we're all divided by God from God because of the fact that we have sin in our lives. Sin is feeding flesh. We feed ourselves instead of feeding God. It separates us from Him. The word sin means to miss the mark. If I was a, shooting an arrow at a target and I missed the target bullseye, I sin. That's what that term means. So what he means is if you're shooting at the target of living for God, every time you miss, you sin. That's what that term means. And guess what? How many of us have sinned? Oh, my goodness. 
We're supposed to live for God. I mean, my target, I don't have any in the middle, man. I'm, my target is loaded up, buddy. I've got arrows. The whole outside of the target has been shot off. I mean, I just destroyed that thing. And the ground is filled with darts and stuff all around it, man. Sin, 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 sin. That's just who we are. When we go our own way, we'll always head to destruction. The Bible says that if we feed into our flesh, that it leads us to destruction, to corruption. But Romans 6.23, and some people go, you know, hey, well, I have a sin. What's the big deal? Who cares? So, everybody's got sin. Who cares? Well, guess what? There's a big reason why you should matter. Because we're accountable to God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Right? That word death there does not just mean a physical death. It's talking about a spiritual death, a separation from God, and a burning hell, a place of absolute pain and torment. And the people that are out there that you and I want to be angry at or we want to get into an argument on Facebook with, we're just pushing them further to hell every time we do that. You will not build a bridge with more anger. You will not build a bridge through trying to educate someone to Christ. It's not going to work that way. You will love them to Christ. You're to love your enemy. That's what the Bible says. Love them. It's not based upon how they treat you or whether they deserve it. It is irrelevant. The Bible says you're to love your enemy. That's the one that wants you to be destroyed. The Bible says to love those that despitefully use you. That means they used you, man. They drew you in as a friend, and they cut you off because they were feeding self. And you were just nothing more than a pawn in their feeding frenzy. And so we live this life, and God says, hey, you know what? There's a way. There's a way to reach this world. Verse 19 says this, The clothes of service, to do service in the holy place, the holy garment of Aaron, the priests, and the garments of his sons, to minister the priest's office. So again, in this, even in the clothing of Aaron, we'll see that Jesus is pictured yet again. Because guess what? Jesus is our high priest. Roman, in Hebrews 2.14 says this, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, and he might be, might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Again, again and again and again and again and again, God's saying, here's my plan, here's my plan, here's my plan. Reach the world, reach the world, reach the world, reach the world. Share love. Do what I'm calling you to do. Do exactly what Christ did. Reach out to them with compassion. It says he looked upon them and he says, as sheep having not a shepherd, he had compassion upon the people because they needed him. And that's what's happening here. God said, Moses, we've seen him pictured, right? Moses pictured Jesus. Now, understand, Jesus is in his distant future. He has no idea he's picturing Christ, but yet he is. Every time he acts as a mediator between God's wrath and the people, he stepped in. He put himself at risk. And then here we are, looking into our distant past. And there's Jesus doing that very thing, fulfilling his role as the mediator between God's wrath and the people. But see, God's build, current building project, it's the church, man. It's about building the church. Go ye into all the world. Preach the gospel. Reach this world. And so that's where we come in. This is our part of the job, right? So we're being called, Moses is calling the workers, right? Those wise-hearted, wise -hearted, he's calling them to work. And guess what? God's calling us to work. Jude 1, verses 17 through 23 says this, But, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there, would, there should be mockers in the last times, people that make fun of God, and you should walk after their own ungodly lusts. Boy, this is the world we live in. These be they who separate themselves. Look at that. Separate themselves. Sensual, having not the spirit. They live in division, not in unity. 
verse 20, but be, this is, but ye beloved, speaking to the church, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, keep your eyes on Christ, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Keep your eyes on the eternal, not on the carnal, not on the short term. Look long term. Look at this, verse 22, and of some have compassion just like Jesus, making a difference right? There are some that will listen, man. There are some that are out there that are broken right now, and guess what? They're looking for answers. They're searching right now. They are broken, and they are in desperate need, and they're looking for someone to care, and that's where it says we're supposed to have compassion. Compassion is a care, a willingness to take not only the heart that we feel, but do something about it. Have conversations that are difficult. Talk to, talk to people. Don't avoid it. But don't go out and stir things up and create division. Understand it's about unity, helping them to recognize that their need is the same need that you had, which is you were lost and undone without Christ, and he came to you because he loved you right where you were. And look at the last verse, verse 23. And others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. So I'm looking at this person. You know what? Their garment, their flesh is spotted with sin. And I'm disgusted by the lifestyle that they live. But the Bible says, and I'm supposed to pull them out of the fire. And I'm supposed to care for them. Save with fear. Fear not of them, fear of God. Because God says, you know what? I created them for me. I created them to be used for God's glory. And there they are. They're spotted with the garment. They don't know any better. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do when Jesus was on the cross. Hey, they don't even realize what they're doing. And here you and I are dealing with humanity. And we look at them and go, well, look what they're doing. And we want to judge them, but guess what? They're lost. What do lost people do? They act like lost people. Sinful people do sinful things. That's who we were. We used to be the children of disobedience. And we still sin. We still fall into the trap. They have no spirit of God. They have no help of God. They're on their own the same way that we were. And we left destruction in our wake. And guess what? They're leaving destruction in their wake. And they're burning as we speak. And what happens in their lives, it says you've got to be willing to pull them out of fire. If Riley's in a fire and I'm going to save her, I have to reach into that fire. And I'm going to get burned if I want to save her because i got to reach in and i got to grab her by the hands and I'm going to pull her out with all I've got. And I'm going to risk my life. Michael does it every day as a firefighter. They're willing to put their lives on the line. Man, they're willing to say, you know what? The fire's burning. The roof could collapse. And they'll run into the fire. Thousands of degrees. Willing because they care, Right? He's doing it for a stranger, man. And you and I have people in this world that, you know, when we look at them, and guess what? They're on their way to burn. They're on their way to suffering. They're suffering as we speak. And yet we go, you know what? I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get my hands dirty. I might get hurt. Guys, there are missionaries right now that are around this world that are willing to put their lives on the line to reach people that they don't even know because guess what? They have compassion. This Jude verse, man, it speaks to my heart. Because it says, hey, man, others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. I can hate what they've done, and I can hate their sin, but I cannot hate that person. I've got to love them right where they are. And I don't care what they're doing or what they've been involved in. They're a soul that Jesus died for. And we have to have compassion for them. That's the reason why we're here. So, being willing to get our hands dirty, injured, die perhaps. It's God's building plan. In verse 20, and all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. Guess what? 
They got their orders, and what did they do? Let's get to work. Let's go, let's go do this thing, man. Let's get it done, right? They submitted themselves. And I submit to you guys that guess what? Those that are wise-hearted, those of us, we're going to invest our talents, our skills, our gifts, our abilities to accomplish God's plan. We know what God's plan is just to build this church. We get so caught up with this world and the cares of this world that we lose sight of why we're here. The building plan of God, man, the building plan of God is creating the church. No doubt what God's plan is. He clearly laid it out to us. He's shown it to us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave, right? He gave himself. He gave his best. God also asks us to give of ourselves. But he also says, you know what? Give what I've given you in talents, not just in your resources. Give your lives for me. God's deepest desire is to save humanity from itself. We are our own worst enemy. And God's called us to share the good news. That's what the gospel is. That's what it means. It's the good news. And in doing so, guess what? As a child of God, man, we have a job to do. We're supposed to be about the Father's business, right? That's the goal. Now, the question is, will we shirk our responsibility selfishly and fulfill our own plan and join the ranks of the foolish? Or will we surrender ourselves humbly before God to fulfill His plan, to love the world, to reach out to them, and have God list us among the wise-hearted? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you, God, for the message, for the word of God, and for the truth that is spoken so clearly through it. God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters that are here, those that are watching online, watching recorded. And Lord, I do pray for us, God, that we will be of ears to hear, Lord, that you will help us to mobilize as a workforce to do the things that you've called us to do, which is to reach this world. We are not promised tomorrow, not one of us. This could be our very last day that we ever have on this planet. And God, if it is, help us, Lord, to go out working not fulfilling self, not for looking for ways to fulfill that, that other God. But Lord, help us to realize who it is we serve. Do all that we do heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, for you serve the Lord Christ. Help us, God, to keep that at the forefront of our hearts and minds and take our abilities and skills, whether we're at our work or whether we're in our society, whether we're in church. Help us, God, to represent you and share the light and the love of Christ through the gospel message of who you are with their heads bowed and with their eyes closed. If you're here today and you say, you know what, hey, pastor, I mean, I hear you. And I'm ready to step into the workforce. I've been on the sidelines. I've been letting other people do it. I've been trusting it's just going to happen some miraculous way. God's going to take care of things. But I understand that I have a personal responsibility. God's going to hold me accountable. And you gave me most talents and abilities to be used for you. If that's you and you've made that decision, you say, I'm ready to get started. Praise God. There's no better time than now to step up and do the job that God's called us to do. And if you're here today and you say, you know, Pastor, I, I'm not even sure I understand what it means to be a child of God. There was almost 19 years ago, someone asked me a question. They said, if you were to die today, if this is your last day on earth, are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven? And you know what? I was not a child of God. I was not raised in church. I'd never spent any time in church whatsoever, never read the Bible in my entire life. And what happened was when he asked me that question, I evaluated myself and said, you know what? I don't know. And if that's you today, wherever you are, this is not a matter of a religious ceremony or a magic prayer. This is a matter of the heart. 
The Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anybody. God is not a, a discerner or, 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 or a, 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 doesn't choose one person over another. I can't think of the word I want to say. But he's not a respecter of persons. So anybody who you are, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you open your heart to him and you're willing to receive him as your savior, he will save you right where you are. In this service, online, or wherever you are. Now, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. I'm going to lead you in prayer, but I don't understand. It's not the words of the prayer. Because God doesn't care about the words. It's the heart that's behind it. The Bible says, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The heart. So as God listens to your heart right now, you can pray. Speak to him, because I can't do anything for you. But I am going to give you an opportunity to pray. And open your heart to him to receive the greatest gift, which is Christ. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, repeat after me. Dear Lord, I'm, I know that I'm a sinner. And I'm sorry for all that I've done. The people that I've hurt. The decisions that I've made. Feeding self and leaving destruction in my wake. And God, I pray right now that you will come into my heart. That you will come into my life. And that your death on the cross would pay the sin debt that I cannot pay. Lord, right now, I repent of my sin. I trust you as my Savior and receive you as my Lord. Lord, thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks. Amen.